how many of you have seen the show uh, Undercover Boss? How many of people have seen that? Know kind of the concept? Oh, Caleb really likes it. Christian, not quite as excited, but still here. Yes, Undercover Boss uh, is a show um, that I've seen a couple times, not many, but in the show, the boss of a company like DirecTV or like Subway or like 7-Eleven, they kind of go undercover in their own company. They maybe sometimes put on disguise, but basically the point is like they don't want other people to know that they're the boss. Um, and they, they're coming in like, hey, I'm a new person, I want to get trained in this job, and it's like getting this you know, kind of ground level view of their company. And the goal is so that um, they can know what life is like as an employee of their company. They receive unbiased, unfiltered feedback. You know, imagine you like, your boss comes and asks you, hey, what do you think about this company? And you're going to be like, you know, it's awesome. You know, <laughs> that's, not, that's all you're going to say to your boss. But if you're just training somebody new who you don't know as your boss, you're going to be like, yeah, you know, you're kind of going to say your opinion. You're going to be like, oh, this place is awesome. Or, yeah, this could, place could be better. Here's something that I think could be better. And so they get this unbiased, unfiltered feedback. And usually they do kind of like three different jobs at the company to get this variety of experiences and variety, uh, meet a variety of people. And as other employees are training them, they're, uh, they're hearing what they think about the company and a lot of times the employees uh, are sharing about their lives, like this is what's going on in my life, this is what I'm struggling with, like I have these health issues, like I have these issues at home I'm, I'm, I'm having problems with. Um, but they're getting to see, they're kind of like at the top of the ladder, they're sitting at the top of the ladder and they're going down to the bottom of the ladder, like at the very entry level, level position to get this perspective on what life is like. And sometimes they're really impressed by employees, they're like, wow, their work ethic is awesome, their attitude is awesome, even when they're doing the most menial of tasks. Like there's one where they go to like waste management, you know, the garbage company, and they're like, wow, they're, there's this guy that's just picking up garbage out in the field and he's just like, you know, he has like this awesomeness attitude, or somebody like cleaning poop and stuff out of like a, what are those things called, porta potty These people clean this stuff out and they're like, how can you be happy doing this? And it's like, well, you know, they have just this perspective. So they get to see this cool um, side of people. At the end of the show, the boss will reveal themselves to the employee. Like, hey, I was the boss all along. They'll put on their suit and you know, and all that stuff again. And they're often shocked. The employee had no idea. They're talking to the boss of the company about their life and what they think about the company. And a lot of times the boss is like sympathized with what the situation of the people are like, oh, yeah, that is something we need to change about this company. Oh, that, that is really hard, like what's going on at your house or what's going on with your mom or what's going on with you and your health issues. And the boss's experience of going down to that ground level um, gives them this chance to know their employees at a specific, level, a specific way and then bless them and lift them up in, in a way that's really personal to them. And they're able to do that because they step down off the ladder and put on the clothes of a regular employee. And today we're beginning our, or not beginning, we're continuing our series called Living the Good News Together. And we're learning how do we, as a church, as, as Christians, as a community, respond to the good news about Jesus together. And so just take a moment, we've done this every week, we're going to keep doing it. Um, so flip to the back of your songbook, um, give us the roadmap for where we're going here. And today we've, we've gone down the journey a bit, so I just want to point out here's where we are on the journey, um, so you know um, where we're at. We've covered our mission statement um, at the top, which is as a community, we're surrendering all of life to Jesus and inviting others to do the same. Nick shares that with us um, every week at the beginning of the service. But then we might ask, well, how do we surrender all of life to Jesus? How do I do that? Well, how do I invite others to surrender their lives to Jesus too? How do I share my faith with other people? Well, our answer is those five things in the middle we call our community practices. We do that by practicing believing the gospel, living as family, loving as servants, going as messengers, relying on the Spirit. And the end goal of all this is so that, at the bottom, that's our vision, as the family of God, we can show and tell the good news of Jesus to every man, woman, and child. And last week we covered 
living as family up in the community practices. And this week we're covering the third one, which is loving as servants. So that's where we are. It's our roadmap. You know where we're at um, in this series. And last week we talked about how when we surrender all of life to Jesus, we're given a new identity. When we believe the gospel about Jesus, who we are is changed. Um, we're no longer defined by sin and death and darkness and selfishness, but God gives us a new identity. We leave our old selves behind to live a new life for Jesus. And this decision um, to give our lives to Jesus and leave our old life behind is marked um, by baptism. The whole, the whole New Testament talks about people get baptized. Right when they make this decision for Christ, they get baptized. Um, and one way you can think about it, if you attend a wedding ceremony, you are witnessing and you're celebrating two people making a commitment to each other. And they're doing it before God and before all their guests they invited. In the same way, baptism is um, somebody publicly committing themselves to Jesus, saying, like, I'm committing to Jesus, and it's witnessed by other people and celebrated by other people. It's kind of um, similar to a wedding ceremony. And um, baptism, it's done in, just you know, in case people don't know what it is, it's done in, done in deep enough water so that um, the person being baptized can go fully under the water and they come out of the water. And when they go into the water, it's picturing that their old life, their old life of sin, their old life of selfishness, they're being cleansed of the penalty of all that sin, um, and they're burying that old life behind them, kind of like burying it in the water. Then they get brought up, and they've been cleansed of all their sin. Um, you know, it doesn't happen in that moment, but because they've trusted Jesus, this is a picture of it. They've been cleansed of all their sin, they get brought up, and now they're renewed to live a new life for Christ. Their sin, their old life is buried, and now they're living a new life for Jesus. And Jesus said that his disciples should be baptized um, into one name, but that one name has three persons connected to it, the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And the Bible teaches that there's one God, uh, but that one God exists in a loving unity of three equally divine persons. So it's not three gods, but it's one God and three persons. I kind of like to do this. It's like, you know, here's one. I know it's one, one finger, but one. It's all together, but three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So one God, three persons. Um, and when we commit to Jesus... Um, we're baptized into the name of this God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And now he's the one who defines who we are. We're not defined by sin and selfishness. Now God defines who we are. We're given a new name, a new identity, and a new purpose. And last week we learned that because God the Father adopts us, we live as family. And this week we're focusing on the identity we're given in connection to Jesus, God the Son. And the big uh, question um, that we're going to be answering as we go through Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. That's the, the passage that's helping us learn about this identity um, when we tr from, that we get from Jesus. Uh, the big question to answer is, how do we become great in Jesus' kingdom? How do we become great in Jesus' kingdom? That's what Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28 are gonna is going to answer. How do we become great in Jesus' kingdom? And we'll look at this in two parts. And the first part is the request for greatness in verses 20 through 23. And when this request for greatness comes, Jesus has been traveling around Israel for about three years. His ministry is about to wind down. He ministers for about three years, preaching about the kingdom, teaching people about forgiveness. And it goes on about three years, and he's it's kind of winding down um, in that chapter. Uh, it's starting to wind down. He's been telling people about the kingdom of God, offering them forgiveness for their sins, and saying, come and follow me. Follow my way of life. Follow my example. Follow what I'm doing. And the people, people closest to him now believe that he's the Messiah, the Christ, the one that the Old Testament prophets talked about and said would come. And this is big news because God 
allowed his people to be conquered by other nations and taken out of their land. They eventually return, but they get taken out of their land into exile. That's how the Bible talks about it. Because they refuse to be faithful to God. God always told them, if you aren't faithful to me, um, if you just start worshiping other gods, like this is the consequence. This is what's going to happen. But God said that he would send a king to bring salvation, to restore them, and provide forgiveness for their sins. And after centuries of waiting, they think, the people closest to Jesus are thinking, God has finally sent the one who's going to do all this stuff. And Jesus, nearing the end of his ministry, he begins moving towards Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. So they're thinking, like, okay, like we've been kind of in the outskirts here. Like He's made a couple trips to Jerusalem before, um, but he's making this trip, and it's like, okay, we've kind of built a coalition here. Like We're moving there. This was like our big moment. Um, and on the way, as they're going there, he gives his disciples this lesson about his kingdom. He says, the last will be first, and the first last. Kind of weird. The last will be first and the first last. It's like this weird reversal. And so what does that mean? And they're kind of, you know, they must be thinking like, well, that's kind of weird. Whatever. I don't get it. You know, we're heading up to Jerusalem. We're going to do this thing. And so what does that mean? And with this lesson in their minds, Jesus continues going up the hills toward Jerusalem and tells his disciples for the third time, he's predicted this three times, two times, and now for the third time he's going to say, this is what's going to happen to me when I get there. And so I'll just back up. We're going to be in um, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, but I'm going to back up to verse 18. This is what he tells them. He says, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. So even though Jesus is preaching about God's kingdom and the forgiveness of sins, and he's demonstrating his authority over diseases and sickness and nature and, and demons and over everything. He's demonstrating his authority and he's accepted the title of Messiah. He's also at the same time telling his disciples, I'm going to suffer and die. And so how do both of these things work together? How can he be a king who brings salvation and a king who dies? He can't even save himself. So how could he ever bring salvation to other people? How could he ever save other people? And just a little while after telling them that he's going to suffer and die, we hear this request for greatness in verses 20 through 23. As Jesus and those following, following him continue toward Jerusalem. Two of Jesus' disciples, along with their mo mother, approach Jesus. And the mother kneels before Jesus, showing honor and respect. You know, she's showing tons of respect for him. She recognizes him as the king God has sent, and she has this request. And so Jesus says, well, what do you want? She knows he, you, she wants to ask something. And so she asks that her two sons, James and John, would be given seats of honor to help Jesus rule. You know, it's like the president, right when he's elected, he's like getting his cabinet together. It's like Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. He's going to become king and like, I want to be part of his cabinet. Like, let me be part of his ruling party. And when he sits on his throne, she wants one to sit on his left side and the other to sit on his right side. And there's a, there's a certain amount of faith to commend here in this mother and her sons. And we should mention, this is probably the same um, woman named uh, Salome. Salome? I guess it means Salome or Salome, um, who we hear about in John 20. She's at, uh, or the end of John, she's there at the cross when Jesus is crucified. So it's not like she's just some person who's like super selfish. She's just not seeing things, everything she needs to see now. Um, so the, this faith that they have is they believe Jesus is the king whom God has sent. Um, they're following this king, and they believe this king is going to be successful in setting up his kingdom, even though they're just this you know, ragtag of people, a bunch of disciples heading up to Jerusalem. The problem is that they don't yet see, or perhaps are refusing to see, because we just read what Jesus said about himself, they maybe are refusing to see what type of king Jesus is or what type of kingdom he is setting up. And Jesus makes this clear in verse 22 with his response. Verse 22 says this, Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? In the Old Testament, the cup was often used as an image for suffering or for God's judgment. God said, like, everyone who is an evildoer, everyone who doesn't follow his ways, he's going to pour out the cup of his wrath on all those evildoers. That's the penalty for their sin. That's the consequence of rebelling against God. If you're in a king's kingdom, you can't just say, like, I don't, you know, I'm not going to pay honor to that king. I'm just going to follow my own laws. Like, you get kicked out of the kingdom. And God says, one day, all those evildoers, he's going to pour out, you know, it's just this image, like, there's a cup, and that's, this is all his, um, this is his uh, rightful response towards sin and rebellion. Someday he's going to pour all that out on um, people who have decided to rebel against him. And the mother, uh, Jesus knows what's before him. He's made it clear to his disciples. He's saying, like, I'm going to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. And the mother asked the question, um, but then Jesus poses a question to the sons. He kind of, she asks a question. He kind of turns to them. He's like, well, are you, are you able to go through what I'm going to go through? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they want greatness, but they do not understand what the path to greatness requires. And they answer, well, we are able. And They've heard Jesus predict his rejection, sufferings, and death, but perhaps they thought, well, maybe he's exaggerating a bit because their expectation is that Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to kick out the Romans, and they're going to get their land back, they're going to be able to worship God once again without foreign control. They know that that's going to be a difficult road. Of course, you can't defeat an army without suffering and loss of life. So sure, yeah, we can drink that cup, Jesus. Like We know this is going to be difficult, but, and they think they're up to this task. But verse 23 gives Jesus' response. Verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. During the trip to Jerusalem, Jesus actually told them not too long ago that um, when he sits on his throne, those who have followed him are also going to have seats of honor. And he tells them that what they've suffered, they're going to receive back a hundred hundredfold and they're going to inherit eternal life. And so you know, what they're asking here is like not totally out of what Jesus has already talked about. He's saying like, you know, there's going to be honor um, for people who follow me in my kingdom. But what James and John are doing, they're calling dibs early on the best seats of honor. How many of you have ever played like a shotgun, like, you know, like getting in a car, like shotgun, like you get the front seat, the front best seat. I don't know, that was always like a thing. Uh, anyway, I won't tell the story, but it's like, they're kind of like shotgun, you know, we want the best seat sitting next to Jesus. And then um, they want this greatness, but they have no idea what the path to greatness requires. Jesus tells them, um, well, you're indeed going to experience suffering. You're indeed going to experience some of the things I go through. Um, but the role of signing those seats of highest honor is my father's. That's his job to do. So James and John, they don't yet understand what greatness in Jesus' kingdom is all about. And so let's move to part, that's the request for greatness. Let's move to part two of this passage, verses 24 to 28, to hear Jesus' teaching on greatness. Jesus had 12 really close disciples. Maybe they're going up to Jerusalem. Maybe they're all kind of huddled around him. There's other people following behind as well because we discover um, that James and John's mom is with them. So there's other people like following Jesus up to Jerusalem. And we know when he enters Jerusalem, there's like this big, it's called the triumphal entry. People are waving palm branches and singing songs to Jesus. And so there's, there's kind of this parade of people coming with him. But the 12 disciples um, are his closest followers. And the, 10, the other 10 here what James and John have asked about Jesus. And they're annoyed and angry. They're resentful. They snort with indignance. Oh, can you believe them? Can you believe that they went and like, asked for those seats you know, um, before us? Or like, how, how could they even think to be doing that? And this whole conversation about greatness that they're having is kind of a bit like deja vu because back in chapter 18, verse 1, they 
ask there about greatness. Like, how can we be great in your kingdom? We want to be, you know, great people in your kingdom. And Jesus, um, he tells them, well, he calls this child to them. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child, they'll be the ones who will be great in my kingdom. Not only this, but as they've traveled to Jerusalem, he's told them that lesson we heard before, that the last will be first and the first will be last. And now he gives them a similar teaching, kind of bringing all these things together. He just keeps teaching them the same thing. And knowing his disciples are annoyed and angry at the two brothers for trying to call dibs on the seats of highest honor, he calls all 12 of them to him and says in verse 25, calls them to him and says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So what does he do? He first points to the position of highest worldly power, a king. And it's like, they, you know, they can't get quite any higher than that. There's a king, they rule over people, they have servants, they tell people what to do, people don't tell them what to do, they have land, you know, they have a kingdom. And so he points to the place of highest um, authority and power and greatness in the world's terms. And he says, well, you know that kings and queens and rulers, um, they exercise lordship over their people, and they, they're exercising authority over people. They have servants. That's, that's how it works at the top. And the di- disciples, they're thinking, well, Jesus is going to be like one of these rulers, and they want to be at the top with him. We want to be a part of, you know, ruling with you, Jesus. Like, you're going to be at the top, and we want to be up there with you. And, but then he surprises them in verse 26. He says this in verse 26, um, verse 26 to 28. He says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So first Jesus points the people at the top of the world's ladder. You know what rulers are like. They rule over people. That's what greatness in the world looks like. You have authority over people and they serve you. And then he says, but that's not how it's going to be with people who call themselves my disciples. Because then he points to the people at the bottom of the world's ladder and he says, that's what it's going to be like for you. You're not going to be like these people. You're going to be like these people. If you want to be great, you need to become a servant. If you want to be first, you need to become a slave of others. Because remember what he said before, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Why is this? Why does he say that's how it's going to be with you? Well, it's because that's what the king they're following is doing. Jesus says that the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to take. Rulers take. I take from people. They give me stuff. Jesus said, I've come to give. I've come to serve. I've come to, to pour out my life for other people. And he says he's come to give his life as a ransom for many. And a ransom is a price paid to free a slave. It's kind of, I mean, if you think about ransoms today, you usually think like somebody takes somebody hostage and they've got to pay a ransom. I mean, you're freeing somebody who's you know, captured, they're enslaved. And so a ransom is a way to free a slave. If you want to redeem a slave, meaning free them from slavery, you pay the ransom price. And Jesus says he came to give his life as the ransom price to free many other people from slavery. Well, we may ask, well, what are people in slavery to? Like, does this just mean physical slavery? Or who, you know, does this apply to us? Well, we're in slavery to sin. Without Jesus, we all walk around, though we can't see them, with chains on our wrists and chains on our ankles because we are slaves to sin. We can't be free of its penalty. We can't be free of its power. We can't be free of its presence. We all have these chains that enslave us to sin. But the good news is that Jesus came to serve and to give his life, to buy us out of slavery to sin. He's come to cancel our debts so that we can live free again. He's come, he's come to break those chains off us. And the big question this passage answers is, how do we become great 
in Jesus' kingdom? And here's the answer. Because Jesus gave himself for us, we love his servants. Because Jesus gave himself for us, we love his servants. How do we become great in Jesus' kingdom? It's because Jesus gave himself for us, we love as servants. That's how we become great in Jesus' kingdom. We follow the king's example. Once you think, like, if this is the guy we're saying, I surrender my life to him, um, and he's not sitting around saying, like, you no, no, you know, he's, he's the one who got down. Remember that first scripture reading? He got down on his hands and feet to wash the feet of his disciples. And, you know, Peter, it's so funny because Peter's like, he's like, no, 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 you aren't going to wash my feet. And he's like, if you don't do this, you have no part of me. Okay, wash all of me. Walk, you can, we can wash all of me. It's fine. You know, you know, it's like he gets down on his hands and feet to, to wash Peter feet, uh, symbolically washing him clean. You know, he's actually washing his feet, but he's going to go to the cross. He's going to die for Peter's sins so he can truly wash him, wash him clean of his sins. And that's the same thing that Jesus does for each of us. He got down in the cross. He got down in our sin so that we can be washed clean of, of it. And the disciples think that the highest level of greatness is a king. Kings have authority over people and, and people serve them. But in Jesus' kingdom, the highest level of greatness is the one who becomes Servant. Greatness in the, king, in the kingdom isn't about how many people are serving you, but about how many people you are serving. And that's because Jesus became the ultimate servant. That's the king of the kingdom, so we follow what he's done. And if you think back to Undercover Boss, the boss steps down from the top of the ladder, and he puts on the clothes of regular employees to do a job they're not required to do. And Jesus was at the top of the ladder. He had it all. He's God. He doesn't need to go get down in the dirt. He doesn't need to go down and get in, in our sin, and our garbage, and our mess. Um, but Jesus stepped down from his throne. He put, down huma- put on humanity to do a job that he wasn't required to do. He never sinned. He hasn't earned the penalty for sin. And while he was on earth, he always lived to serve his heavenly Father. He was always doing the Father's will. But no job was too low for him. He took on our sin, and the penalty for our sins, for, for sins he never committed. He took on the penalty and he took, took that on for a sin he never committed. He, all of the sins um, that we've committed. And that's also we could be free. He paid our debt even though he owed nothing. And I was thinking, and Nick shared with me that Psalm um, 40 that he read at the beginning, and I was thinking about that pit, that image of a pit and God lifting us out of a pit. And imagine every time... Um, every time you did something selfish, every time you sinned, every time you did something wrong, you were just taking a shovel full of dirt out from under you and digging this big hole for you to be in. And after you've just been digging and digging and digging your whole life, and so you're down in this hole, and you've dug a pit for yourself, you're dirty and you're cold and alone. You know, maybe somebody walks by like, oh, hey, down there, but it's, they can't even see you because you're down so far, it's dark. You know, every single sinful act, every single selfish act was taking a shovel of dirt. And Jesus he went down in that pit. He went into that hole that you dug for yourself, and he lifted you out of it, and he took your place. And this is the cup that he drank. You know, he talked about, I'm going to drink this cup of God's wrath. We deserve to be down in that pit. We dug it ourselves. We, we made this issue for us. But Jesus goes down in there, and he takes that on. He lifts us out, and he takes our place in that pit. That's what he was suffering on the cross. It was the penalty for our sins. And so he goes down in there and lifts us up so we can be free of it. Or you can think about that cup as like, you know, every time you sin, like here's this cup of water, like it starts off pure. Every time you sin, you just put a little drop of poison in it, like your whole life. 
Like every time, your whole life, it's just this big cup of poison. Jesus comes along and says, this is what you deserve to drink. You deserve to die and drink the poison of your own sin and own selfishness. But Jesus comes and he drinks it for us so we don't have to um, die for our own sin and selfishness. It doesn't matter how sinful you are, how poor you are, how dirty and destitute you are, how bad you are, how ashamed and guilty you are. Because it doesn't matter because the kind of God we worship is the kind of God who loves you and he gave himself for you. He went down to the depths of your lowest sin, your lowest point, to free you from it. And nobody has a job too low for Jesus or too dirty for Jesus. There's no task too great. He can wash you clean and free you from your sin. It's no, no, bad, no matter how bad the cup of your sin is, Jesus drank it and you can be free of it when, when you trust in him. So how many of you felt hopeless? How many of you felt forgotten? How many of you felt like nobody gets it? Nobody gets what I'm going through. Nobody gets my life. Nobody gets what I'm feeling. How many of you felt alone and abandoned by others? How many of you felt those about God? He just doesn't get it. He doesn't care what I'm going through. He doesn't care about me. Those are all lies from Satan because Jesus' life and death proves, yes, he does. He does get it. He does care about what you're going through. He does care about you. God loves you and he has the scars to prove it. He was nailed to a cross and he still has those scars. And not only, not only does God care, but he knows what it feels like. Jesus became human and he felt what it's like to be tempted, to suffer, to be rejected, to be alone, to be in pain, to be sad, to be mad, to be angry. And because of that, he can sympathize with what you're going through because he felt it too and yet was without sin. In other gods, in other religions, we heard this in our a series we did in this, this past fall. Um, we were having a study on Friday nights. Uh, other gods <coughs> and other religions require you to be conquerors. It's up to you to reach enlightenment. It's up to you to reach God. It's up to you to pull yourself out of your sin and live a better life. You need to climb the ladder. You need to climb out of your hole that you've dug, and you know, now you need to clean yourself up. But with Jesus, with the God of the Bible, with the one true God, he climbs down the ladder for us. He gets in the dirt and the garbage with us, and he lifts us out to carry us up the ladder to be with him. He climbs down into our anger with our spouse or with our kids or our apathy about life, our despair that life just isn't going my way. This just, this just stinks what's been happening to me. And he climbs down into our rejection by our friends or our family. He feels it all. And he pulls us out of it. He pulls us out of that sin. And the big question this passage answers is, how do we become great in Jesus' kingdom? And the answer is, because Jesus gave himself for us, we love as servants. And Jesus challenges for us to get off the throne and stop thinking like kings and queens. Because that's what we do. And instead, we're to think like servants and slaves. And that's how we become great in Jesus' kingdom. So how do we do that? How do we stop thinking like kings and start thinking like servants? Well, here's two ways. First, instead of demanding God do our will, we do his will. Instead of God demanding, instead of demanding God do our will, we do his will. That's how we start. stop thinking like a king and start thinking like servants. Instead of demanding God do our will, we do his will. This is the mindset we need to have in our vertical relationship with God because um, Jesus, what he called the greatest commandment was love God with all that you have. Put him first in our life, the number one priority. But we so often think God exists to serve us. We believe that we're the king and we make the demands on him um, and he needs to do what we want. And just think, how often do you tell God 
what you want from him instead of listening to him for what he wants from you. Or often do you, often do you get mad at him for not doing what you want instead of saying, you know, thy will be done. I want to, your will to be done. I want to do your will. And too often our relationship with God is uh, reduced to giving him our daily lists of wishes and wants and nothing more than that. And God does invite us. He invites us to come and tell him what's on our mind. He invites us to cast all our anxieties on him, to make our requests known to him. And he does this because he's a good father and he loves and cares about us. You, If you're a parent, you want your kids to come and this is what, what I'm going through in my day. This is what I'm struggling with at school. You want them to come to you. Um, but if this is the only way we relate to him, we've misunderstood the relationship and we're missing out in the relationship. Because kids don't just tell their parents what they want. They need to listen to their parents. They need to listen to their parents' wisdom. They need to listen to their parents' affection and direction um, that they can give them in their lives. Um, we receive guidance and instruction and correction and, and affirmation from God. We need our Heavenly Father's wisdom to navigate life. We need to hear His love and His affection for us. We need to hear His voice. We don't just need to get our voice to Him. We need to hear His voice and what He says about us and what He um, wants us to do. And Jesus was always in tune with His Father's will. He said it was His spiritual food. It made Him feel full and satisfied and, and nourished. And Jesus' family are those who do the will of His Heavenly Father. And he was attentive to the Father's voice. And if we're to follow Jesus, we need to be attentive to his Father's voice as well. And with a servant mindset, we stop demanding that God do our will, and we start to do his. Second, instead of caring most about ourselves, we care most about others. And so the first was, um, instead of demanding God do our will, we do his will. Uh, for, second, instead of caring most about ourselves, we care most about others. That's how we stop thinking like kings and queens and start thinking like servants. Instead of caring most about ourselves, we care most about others. And this is the mindset. First, we had a mindset we need to have with our vertical relationship with God. This is our mindset we need to have with our horizontal relationship with other people. This is what Jesus called the second greatest commandment. He said, love others as you want to be loved. Do unto others as you want them to do under you. But not only do we believe that God exists to serve us, and we believe that other people exist to serve us as well. We live like kings and queens, like all you people are here to serve me, and you need to meet my demands and meet my expectations. That's how we so often live. But in reality, the best thing we can do for ourselves, if you remember when we talked about um, surrendering all of life to Jesus, um, from we did it from Luke 9, um, I believe that was the passage we used. Um, we talked about uh, the best thing we can do for ourselves is to start focusing on someone other than ourselves, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Jesus was not focused on himself. He was focused on, I want to do my Father's will. I want to give my life as a ransom for other people. Because remember, those who put themselves first, in the end, will be last. Those who put themselves last, in the end, will be first. And Jesus says true fulfillment comes from knowing God and from doing his will. And all his will... Um, God's will is that we would love other people like he loves us. He wants us to put him first and then love other people like um, we want to be loved. And Jesus calls us to have a servant mindset with others, which means we care most about them. This is what servants do. They're caring about how do I serve the person that I'm supposed to be serving. And their job is to um, be seeking what other people desire. Um, but we do the same thing with people that we do with God. Um, instead of asking what others want, we tell them what we want, and then we get mad when they don't give it to us. Or we just you know, don't say it, or we just expect them to give us what we want, and then we get mad when they don't give us what we're expecting uh, that they give us. Instead of being concerned with the interests of others, we're concerned with our own interests. Instead of seeking to meet their needs, we want them to meet our needs. But Jesus calls us to be the servants of other people. 
perhaps you're thinking, well, that sounds really impossible. How could I ever live that way? I think, I mean, this is just confession. I think a lot about myself. I think a lot about what I want other people to do for me. And then I get frustrated when they don't do what they want for me. You know, especially in marriage, it's just a constant battle of like, I need to stop thinking about what Katie gives to me. I need to think about what I can give to Katie. And so it's like, man, this is impossible. And the reality is that if it's up to you, it is impossible. Um, but know this truth, you know, that Psalm 40 that Nick read. Jesus has served you more than you will ever serve anybody else. You just need to remember that. Jesus has served you more than you will ever serve anybody else. That's the only thing that can enable us to live this way. Jesus got down in the pit. He drank the cup of God's wrath for us, of the penalty for our sins, so that we could be lifted out of that pit. We don't have to be in there anymore. We don't have to be in that selfish pit. We can live free. Jesus served us so that we can be lifted up and cleansed of our sin. Jesus has served you more than you will ever serve anybody else. He came to serve and not be served. He loves you and he gave his life for you. He's loved more, sacrificed more, humbled himself more, and gave more to us than we ever comprehend. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us. All the curse of sin, all the pain of sin, all the suffering of sin, Jesus drank it. Jesus drank all of sin's penalty so that whoever believes in him would not have to drink it themselves. We worship a generous God who has given us more than we will ever give anybody else. And Jesus puts that generosity on display most clearly in going to the cross in our place to pay our debt. He didn't have to go there. He's paying our debt. We owed it, but he went and paid it. And it's because of God's generosity shown in Jesus that we can love others as servants. But we tend to have one of two mindsets, or maybe both. We have a scarcity mindset or a transactional mindset. With a scarcity mindset, you know, I just have scarce resources. And so we believe, well, I need to, I have very little and I need to scrape it all together. I need to put it in a vault and not share it with anybody. I just have, you know, scarcity of resources, scarcity of blessings. God hasn't given me much, so I need to hoard it and keep it for myself. Or we have a transactional mindset. We think, well, when, when we do something nice for someone, well, now they owe us. Or if somebody does something nice to me, oh, now I owe them. So instead of freely given, giving, we start thinking like business people, like, oh, I pay them money, you know, and they do something nice for me. Or, I, you know, I take their product and I have to give them money. We think, like, something that someone serves me, I need to serve them back. And it's like, we think, like, oh, we owe other people. But the truth is that Jesus, <coughs> he didn't need anything from us. And yet he's given us everything we could ever want. He's God. We, don't, we can't give him anything that he doesn't already have. But he's given us every spiritual blessing comes through him. And every material blessing is from the hand of God. Everything you have, God gives it all to us even and doesn't expect expect us to give him anything in return because he owns it all anyway. He can just take and give as he pleases. He's God. All of these things that we're given come from the generous heart of a God who loves us just because he loves us. You know, just think about that. God loves you because he loves you. It's not because you did X, Y, and Z. God loves you because he loves you. That's what the whole Bible teaches. That's just who he is. This is a love that you could never earn and you don't deserve and yet you have it if you've trusted it. In Christ. And this is the good news. When we love as servants like Jesus has loved, we show other people a picture of the good news of the gospel. When we love people with the generous, no strings attached, self-giving love of God, they see Jesus in us. And I, man, I was just thinking about some of the ways that our church um, has loved as servants over the past, I mean, year. If I went back to all two and a half years, it'd be take too long, but let me just give a couple examples so maybe you can think, of what does it look like to love as a servant? Here's like some practical things I've seen from other people. Um, when Katie and I totaled our car, Nick and Emma let us use 
um, one of their cars several times for several days. They said, you can use this car. And I just tootled around in their car like it was my own car. You know, they loved me as a servant. They gave that to us. And if you didn't know, when we first moved to Woodstock, they let us live with them for a year for free so that we could save up a down payment for a house. They said, we want to bless you guys and let you live with us um, so you can buy a house. And last week, um, Larry organized, um, some of you were here, the giving of a trunk load of presents to someone who just had a baby who's not even a part of our church. She just said, um, she just connected with somebody um, in our church and he said, let's just bless her and give her a bunch of presents. So he organized getting a bunch of presents and giving it to her. And this past summer, while serving uh, ice cream on the square, which was also loving his servants, you know, loving people in our city, um, Larry just gave away uh, his rain jacket to a homeless guy. He's like, you know, I can get another rain jacket. I'm going to give this away. Um, this past summer, um, our whole church spent hours helping Nick and Emma sand down doors in the house and repaint them. <laughs> what did you guys say? How many hours was it? Totally yeah, figured. like 70 or 80. Yeah, 70 or 80. I mean, you know, I didn't work 70 hours. It was like, I contributed five or four or whatever. And then, you know, just added up. It was like, you know, every door in the house. And that was like one way we loved as servants. And this past fall, Larry, Brian, Jerry, Katie, and I raked leaves in each other's yards. And then we raked leaves in our neighbor's yards. You know, this is just like, you know, thinking, you know, what does it look like to love as servants? These are just ideas you can have. Um, in the fall, when we were matched for an adoption, um, Laurel and Emma came over and helped Katie paint our kit kitchen in preparation for the baby. And <laughs> one of our neighbors came over. Katie had to go get something. One of our neighbors came over, and they answered the door, and they're like, Wow, how, what what they ask, like, what, are they, what are they paying you to do to be here painting their kitchen when they're not even here? And they're like, well, you know, I don't remember what you guys said, but it's like, well, we do that because we're giving freely, loving as servants. Even when I was gone and Katie had to go run do something, like they're still painting our kitchen. And then when the, our adoption fell through, we didn't cook for weeks because everyone kept bringing us meals, especially Carol, Jerry's wife, who kept them coming for like two weeks. I don't think we cooked for like, I don't know, two weeks. <laughs> it was crazy. Um, but so here's something, you know, with those examples in mind, here's something you can do um, to put loving as a servant into action this week. First, um, if, you're, you know, if you're a writer or just think in your mind, just imagine this person for you. Who is this? Who is someone that you expect to serve you? And it's easy to tell. Who do you get frustrated with a lot? Who do you get impatient and harsh with a lot? Who are you disappointed with a lot? Or maybe the opposite end, you don't, actually don't pay attention to them. It's someone who does a lot for you and you never notice or thank them. Just take a moment. Who is that person for you? Who is someone that you expect to serve you and you don't really think twice about it? Take a moment. Who is that person for you? Now the way, I'll just wait for a moment let you think if you need to think. Now a way that you can serve them this week, um, you know, or think of a way you can serve them this week. Think of how you can serve them instead of them serving you. How can you bless them? How can you put a smile on their face and let them know that they're cared about by you. So who's that person and what can you do for them this week? In closing, just think about God's love for us was most clearly displayed on the cross where Jesus suffered and died for our sins, not for his sins, for our sins. He drank the cup of God's wrath so we didn't have to. He went in that pit and pulled us out of it when we just deserved to be left in there. The God we worship gave himself sacrificially in love to pull us out of the hole that we dug for ourselves. And when that love comes into our lives, it changes us. We don't love people so that they will love us. We love them because God first loved us. We only love God because he first loved us. We only love other people because God has first loved us. And God just loves us because he loves us. And so we can love others just because we love them. We can just give freely and not expect something in return. We don't do it to get something. We can do it with strings attached. 
God does this for us. And when we show that sort of love to other people, it shows them something that they're different, uh, something different than they're used to because the world is transactional and we all have this scarcity or transactional mindset. So when we show them a, I'm just going to love you because I love you and I don't expect anything from you, there's no strings attached, um, that just shows people something completely different than what they're used to. And so um, but we need Jesus in this. We need God's power. We need the Holy Spirit. Um, two weeks, our final community practice is relying on the Spirit, and it's just which so needed that we have the Spirit doing this for us, because the Spirit's the one who puts the character of Christ in us so that we can show um, Jesus to other people. Let's pray. Father, we're, uh, we submit we're completely unworthy of the love you show us, um, undeserving, um, and yet you show it to us anyway, because that's the kind of God you are. You're generous, um, and you so love the world that you sent your only Son um, to die for our sins so that whoever believed in him would not perish in the pit, in the garbage that, that we've dug for ourselves, but that we would have eternal life. So would you help us to live in light of this truth, live in light of the truth that um, you are the God who gives, you're the God who loves, and you are generous. And so we can be generous with others. We, we can be self-giving um, instead of self-focused. And Father, would you help us now, as we go to the Lord's Supper, would you help us to celebrate with this picture of who you are and what Jesus has done for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.